politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Israel goes in on the ground and Dean Phillips makes his move. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always by the Right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Noah Rothman, and the Sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a Nashville podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Babel and Bethlehem College. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, first of all, welcome back. You were on a big trip to Taiwan. So you've returned from one potential conflict area to this podcast to comment on a, a big conflict going on in the Middle East. So we've talked the last couple of weeks about, well, what's taking Israel so long to go in on the ground? Well, they've gone in on the ground. They haven't gone in... Um, you know, with bells and whistles on and Blitzkrieg style, it's, it seems a relatively limited incursion, or at least a slow incursion. A, a siege appears to have uh, been established around Gaza City. They've cut off communications. They would prefer people not talk about this, which is irritating some folks in the media. But what do you make of it? Well, it's war, uh, and war is all hell. It is, uh, that quote from the Civil War, it is good that we have not become too fond of it. Uh, it is also inevitable that as soon as Hamas broke through the wall and you know began committing its atrocities against unarmed Israeli civilians, this was inevitable. This was not going to be wrapped up with a handful of bombing strikes here and there. Uh, that it reached a point where, as I lay out in today's morning jolt, as long as Hamas exists, there cannot be peace in the Middle East or between Israel and its and its neighbors. Um, Hamas has never been a participant in any of the peace talks. They've never been indicated in having any peace talks. And whenever there's any slight generation of momentum in the direction of some sort of even, you know, partial agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians, Hamas attempts to blow up the, the peace process. And I mean that both metaphorically and if they could literally. Um, there is a very long history in the Middle East of if you try to make peace – Someone will try to kill you, and they will often succeed, whether your name is Sadat, whether your name is Yitzhak Rabin. Um, there is a reason that the, you know, that old saying, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, one reasonable proposal after another has been put on the table, and it never gets taken by Arafat or by any of his successors. I suspect in part because if you say, okay, Israel, we're going to recognize your right to exist – and we're going to have a two-state solution, and we're going to find some way to, you get your side, we get our side. 
Somebody else in the side of the Palestinians, the Arabs, will say, no, you're selling out. You're a, a, a tool of the Zionist entity, and we will kill you because we will always do this. This is not a matter of the drawing lines on the map. You look at the two proposals from the 2007 Annapolis conference. Matt Iglesias put out this tweet earlier, like it was like a week ago. To the naked eye, they're very hard to distinguish any differences between the Israeli proposal and the Palestinian proposal. I'm sure there were some significant differences, but really in the end, what drives this conflict is not the borderlines. What drives this conflict is that there's a significant chunk of the Palestinian people. Different polls will give you different answers. But a chunk of them believe Israel should not exist. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And in that chant, nobody ever gets it. So what do you do with all the Israelis who are currently there? Implicit in that is that they disappear. That, you know, theoretically they could resettle somewhere else, but nobody really talks about that as a serious option. No, the well, vision of Hamas is that they end up dying. They end up being wiped off the map. They end up being driven into the sea. Yeah, well, so, a lot of them had to be resettled in 1948 from, from other Arab countries into Israel, something that very few people talk about. Now, in this, in this uh, scenario, Jim, as you point out, there's no place to go. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, so this, uh, you know, this is going to be an ugly fight, but it was inevitable. And it was, it was forced upon Israel by the actions of Hamas. And everybody calling for a ceasefire doesn't really have any useful alternative for how you deal with the continuing threat of Hamas. When you call for a ceasefire for Hamas, it's like, okay, time to start rearming. Time to start getting more rockets in here from Iran. Time to start building up our forces so that we can go out and we can commit another massacre later on. And Israel is tired of this S-word, this you-know-what, this stuff. They are going, they're attempting to create a more permanent solution. Maybe it's not going to work. Maybe... This, you know, when you do engage in war like this, you end up having innocent civilian casualties. Maybe the Palestinians will end up being angrier than before. That's a really high bar to clear. And maybe they're going to reach a point where they're even more likely to support extremist groups like Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah and all that stuff. But in the end, like any older alternative, oh, we should, you know, apparently Joe Biden wants to start, you know, a peace process once this is over. Well, first of all, this isn't going to end anytime soon. And secondly, Every other, the, the reason we don't have peace in the Middle East is not because U.S. presidents haven't tried hard enough. Clinton tried really hard. George W. Bush tried really hard. Barack Obama tried. All of them have tried hard, except for, ironically, other than Trump, who said, you know what, let's try to get talks with other parts of the Arab, uh, other parts of the Arab world and seem to be getting somewhere with the Abraham Accords. And there's a lot of people who argue Hamas did this because they were frightened of the progress that was being made mm -hmm. under the Abraham Accords. But look, you know, as long as Hamas exists, their mission in life is to kill Jews. Their mission in life is to destroy Israel. And as long as they're around, you're not going to have peace. Yeah, so Jim, to your point, Palestinians always rejecting these potential peace offers or, or peace deals. I picked up this biography of Edward Said, the Palestinian-American author who was such a big deal putting the Palestinian cause on, on the map and creating this whole uh, discourse around decolonization and all that. And I kind of started in the in the middle, and it's in the late 70s, he's just starting to get, a, get attention, Jimmy Carter's president, and Anwar Sadat says, you know, and I think this uh, Palestinian uh, author in the U.S. Could, could have a role in, in helping with negotiations. And Saeed's like, this is it, you know, we're going to solve this thing right now. And um, the, the um, uh, so, so he goes to Yasser Arafat, you know, Yasser, did you get this? You know, did you get the memo? You know, they, they sent some diplomatic document to Yasser Arafat, no response. And then he's frantic. Maybe they lost it. Maybe they didn't get it. You know, Yasser, do you, ha do you have it? Did you get it? And finally, Arafat's just saying, no, we're, we're not going to pay anything, pay any attention for, to anything the United States says. So there's, you know, Saeed uh, 
disappointed back in the, the late 70s by the rejectionism of his own side. So Noah, how, how do you read the, the military operation here? What, what is Israel after? It seems like a key objective here is destroying the tunnels, which given how extensive it is, given it's uh, runs through heavily populated urbanized areas is, is no small feat. As we understand it, the mission objective is regime change. And I can only guess at the tactics and the operational level because it's a very secretive operation. Um, right now, as Jim said, there's an effort to surround Gaza City, cut it off from the south, and presumably to move in from there and clear, hopefully, not house by house, block by block, um, but clear out as much of the uh, above ground Hamas infrastructure as possible before tackling the tunnels, which is a rat's nest. It's unmapped. There is some technology that you can use to see where these things are, but only at a certain degree. The amount of sophistication that went into these, the construction of these tunnels is amazing. Some of them are seven, eight stories down. Um, they have infrastructure. They have water systems, ventilation, electricity, big open rooms. It's believed that this is where the hostages are being kept. To say that, yeah, you know, Matt Iglesias has joked. You know, the center left guy writes a lot about infrastructure that we should get Hamas over here to build our subway tunnels. They go be a lot faster. Uh, yeah, and a lot yeah, cheaper. they can do it. And <laughs> yeah, they could do it pretty efficiently. And apparently, you have Hamas people who are all over Russian television. By the way, Hamas people have access to a studio in in Russian TV uh, via Qatar and in, in Russia proper whenever they want. But they're on t TV saying. You know, it's a responsibility of the international community to build these bomb shelters. That's why they got this concrete to build these tunnels from the international community for, for shelters for the population. And that was diverted into war making capacity. And they say, well, the, the international community is responsible for all this. The international community is responsible for the civilians in Gaza. Not us, not the sovereign of this territory. Um, it has become increasingly hard to avoid the degree to which the Western press and American media want Israel to lose. Point blank, want them to lose this war. There's no other way to interpret what I think is the stuff that's coming out of mainstream media outlets. We have ceasefire calls now from places like the Financial Times editorial board, um, pieces in the New York Times proper and the opinion page and the Washington Post page. I got this alert from uh, the New York Times today, which I want to highlight because I find it just so grotesque. For your, 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 your phones this morning blew up with this, quote, while Israel has continued to decimate Gaza and its people from the air, its ground operation has been more incremental and shrouded in secrecy. And if you click through the link, the piece, the news analysis uh, that this alert was uh, advertising and promoting, argues that Israel isn't giving reporters enough access to their on-the-ground operations in Gaza, which those reporters would promptly broadcast to Hamas and its terrorist proxies, undermining Israel's mission in Gaza. The point here is to undermine its support in the public. The, port, the point here is to hamper its operations in whatever ways are possible. The point here is to make sure that Israel's mission is not achieved, and they do so under the guise of arguing for humanitarian purposes, because ostensibly, in their minds, only a ceasefire now forcing Israel to live with the prospect of another genocidal massacre at some indefinite date would provide relief to the Gazan people is precisely the opposite. If you ever cared at all 
about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. You should be hoping for the regime change operation to succeed and succeed tomorrow. Because on the other side of that is humanitarian relief. That was the case in Afghanistan after 2001, between September 11th and October 7th, 2001. It's going to be the case in Gaza today. And I realize that that's not going to persuade anybody who's really disappointed whenever they find out that Israel didn't actually kill all the Palestinians that the Hamas health ministry says they did. Those people will never be satisfied by it. They don't actually care about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. But there are people, genuine humanitarians, who don't use the issue as emotional manipulative blackmail, and actually do want to see improvements in the human condition in Gaza. And the only way you do that is to oust Hamas, neutralize it, liquidate it as a regime, and replace it with something resembling a responsive government. So, Charlie, the the flip over in the media narrative that we were talking about for a while, saying it was inevitable, maybe some disagreements about how soon it would happen, it clearly is fully and entirely upon us, White House briefing last week, most of the questions were about whether Israel is going too far and whether it's violating laws of war. Kristen Welker had DeSantis on, meet the press, we're going to talk about the presidential, Republican presidential race next segment. And first couple questions, all about what would you do to restrain, you know, uh, uh, the Israelis if you're a president president and get humanitarian aid into Gaza. So th- this is clearly, it's predictable, but this has become the obsession. There's a strange double standard here. I had Dan Senor on my podcast last week, and I asked him to what extent the coverage of this and the protests that we have seen are anti-Semitic. It's a word that gets used a great deal. And he said that in his estimation... Anti-Semitism is when you treat Israel or the Jewish people differently than you would treat anyone else. When the expectations of them don't tally with the expectations of any other nation or people or ethnicity or religion. And I think we've seen a great deal of that here. The most obvious example of it is the way in which Hamas's actions brutal, grotesque actions are often set into context, uh, but Israel's are not. So I have heard from the same people in the last couple of weeks an insistence that we have to understand where the clock started, as one professor put it. We have to understand the geopolitical realities. We have to understand the history We have to understand what is at stake here in order to comprehend why Hamas felt the need, in quotes, to go in and rape women and behead babies and set people on fire. And then the same people have turned around and said that it's problematic if Israel cuts off the internet to Gaza or cuts off water or cuts off electricity. And this is a double standard uh, that was predicted. And it, I think, speaks to what is ultimately an extremely condescending view of the world from people who would be horrified if presented with this, that they think that Israel has agency in a way that Hamas and the Palestinians do not. That ultimately seems to me to be what's going on here. When you ask Ron DeSantis... What would you do as president to try and rein in Israel? You're doing two things. The first is applying a different standard to Israel than you are to anyone else. 
The second is acknowledging that Israel responds to international diplomacy. You don't ask that question of a cat. You wouldn't say to Ron DeSantis, well, what are you going to do to try to convince this cat to change its behavior? But Israel is treated as a normal country, which it is, full of people who have agency. And that's just not how the, the, the powers that be, or the press, uh, or academia for that matter, treat Hamas. They treat them as if they are mindless automatons, animals, subhuman, orcs. Um, and I think this is just absolutely uh, unjust, because what it has led to is a series of columns, some of which Noah alluded to, another of which I read yesterday by Thomas Friedman, that essentially say, yes, Hamas went in and it did what it did. We have to understand why that happened. No, Israel's not allowed to do anything about it. I mean, that's the upshot of it, right? That's the upshot of the present position, is that Israel should stop. Israel should be the bigger man. Israel should use its apparently superior reasoning skills, and Hamas should be left in place. And uh, I, I have been slightly shocked at how quickly this happened. I don't know what I said when you asked me this a few weeks ago, Rich. Was it, did I say two or three weeks, maybe until it turned? Perhaps it has I'm, been. I might have said a little longer, a little longer, but I can't remember. I did think it would be a little longer, I think, because of the sheer barbarity of what we saw. I thought that that would prompt pretty much every rational actor to acknowledge that Israel is dealing here with an organization with whom it just cannot compromise. But apparently not. Apparently, we are now back to the idea that uh, any meaningful response is on Israel and not on Hamas. So, Noah, Charlie mentioned Dan's definition of anti-Semitism in this in this context. How do you think about it? Obviously, you know this this incident at this airport in Dagestan in in, in Russia was just horrifying. You know, it was it was a a, a would be pogrom, you know, in the 21st century being recorded by people's iPhones. Where's the line between that, which is clearly anti-Semitic, and these protests we've seen in the U.S.? What what makes a a protest in the U.S. anti-Semitic in your view? Is it it that the the slogan Jim Jim mentioned that we're and we're all repelled by and hear so much or what? Where where do you draw the line? Yeah, I think all of the... um examples that Jim and Charlie just mentioned are uh, considered anti-Semitic in the context in which they're used, particularly when it comes to Israel. Uh, I want to note that uh, Charlie uh, established as one of those uh, things that, that Dan laid out, the idea that you would that holding Israel to a standard that is not uh, applied to any other country is not just Dan's opinion. That is part of the um, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's working definition of anti-Semitism. It is not a legal definition. It is the working definition of anti-Semitism. It is the one that is adopted by most civilized countries on this planet. And it uh, should be uh, consumed by anybody who's interested in establishing what is the distinction between legitimate uh, criticism of Israel Israel and anti-Semitism. Um, And we don't really need much of an education on what legitimate criticism of the Israeli government looks like, as though that's really on offer here. It's really just a fig leaf. Um, But we just had a year, basically, 
in which we were all privy to what legitimate criticism of the Israeli government looks like. It took the form of massive protests in Israel proper. It took the form of international debate and discussion around the idea of judicial reform in this country that doesn't have a constitution, a unicameral government, kind of an ad hoc government. Uh, and the, deba- the contours of the debate around judicial reform never remotely approached anti-Semitism. It's really only when Jews are targeted for extermination that we kind of get close to the issue of anti-Semitism. And it takes a real willful effort to to mute the distinctions between a legitimate political disagreement and the idea that Jews have it coming. You don't have to look hard to survey the environment now and see precisely who is eliding the distinctions between Israelis and Jews. We have Jewish businesses that are being targeted in Europe, in London, in Paris, with protests, with intimidation, with harassment. Jewish citizens uh, of these countries who have swastikas painted on their, on their doors, or the Stars of David painted on their doors. This is happening in the United States, too. And we have protests across this country uh, from Palestinian supporters who are targeting visibly Jewish Orthodox people who are praying, for example, in places like Teaneck, New Jersey, who's a heavily Orthodox community. That's about the two-state solution. We have people parading down the streets of New York City calling for Antifada and advocating one solution, quote-unquote, to the Jewish problem. That's about the location of the embassy in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. None of this is, is really hard to parse or decipher. There is an, a profound hostility to the Jewish people, particularly among left-wing progressives. They are, it has its roots and origins in Soviet propaganda and Soviet efforts to anathematize the Jewish state. And its vestigial elements are apparent on the left today. And those who still subscribe to the Jacobins and the Common Dreams and the Mondo Weisses and all this far-left insidious propaganda. Uh, I, I don't find it difficult to discern the distinctions there. And the people who belabor these fine points um, that they find so compelling, I think are just a tab- uh, trying to establish a smokescreen for what they honestly want to say, which is that the Jewish state is illegitimate. It deserves to be destroyed as a concept of a Jewish state through immigration, through right of return, what have you. But they don't like its composition as a fundamentally religious entity, the point at which uh, Jews rely on for their own self-preservation in a world that is arrayed against them. They don't like it. They want to see it destroyed. And they kind of realize in the back of their head that's antisocial and need some sort of a logic to justify it. Right. So, Jim Garrity, exit question to you. We've seen a a fair number of well-meaning people left to center saying that they're shocked by what they're hearing by fellow people on the left, by their ideological allies or erstwhile ideological allies. How big of an effect will this have kind of moving center-left opinion against uh, identity politics writ large? A lot, some, a little, none? I would put it into a little, um, and that in order to really be repelled by this, you need to have some degree of attachment to or an admiration for the state of Israel, and a whole bunch of folks on the left don't. And so even if they're not wholeheartedly going to these protests and chanting and 
waving the signs and cracking jokes about killing his hipsters in the desert uh, like that we saw at that Times Square rally. Um, there are a whole bunch of people, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict just isn't their top issue and they're just not going to be all that, that upset by it. That, that, you know, they, their world, the other thing is like, you know, Hamas coming, like I think there are a lot of people who, who just bought into this narrative that the Palestinians may have had some terrorist groups that were up to no good, but mostly the Palestinians were poor, innocent victims. They were the swarthy people. There's this perception that Israel is white supremacist. I know this has been talked to death in this on this podcast in my absence, so I'll try not to rehash all that. But they, they kind of shoehorned it into this very American, you know, oppressor versus oppressed slavery segregation narrative, the use of the term apartheid. Look, first of all, there are a whole bunch of Muslims in Israel who live perfectly happy lives. There's nothing comparable to the treatment of black Africans in South Africa back in the 70s and 80s. But that's neither here nor there. Um, that basically, there are a whole bunch of folks on the left. It just isn't their issue. And they just aren't going to see anything, even as terrible as a Hamas massacre, to prompt them to reconsider that. Because look, if they were wrong about this, Rich, what else could they be wrong about? It's too frightening. Too frightening to contemplate. Charlie? I think this is going to have, in the long run, a an acidic effect on the intersectional project. And I think it might take a little while, both because shifts in our politics do and because the Republicans are seemingly incapable of putting up a presidential candidate or candidates for other important offices that can take advantage of this schism. But the scale of the shock has surprised me. And I think it has highlighted a distinction that often gets elided, which is between liberalism and progressivism. The liberals, I think, are motivated by a different political framework than conservatives have, but one that does not have much time for the radicalism or the esoteric frameworks that mark out progressive politics. And those liberals have run headfirst into those frameworks in the last three weeks. And they're not just horrified by them, they're confused by them, because they had thought that the tone of those people on the progressive side was in line with their own. And it turns out that it's not. So I think in the long run, this is going to split apart some of the people who have unwittingly enabled the uh, progressive ideology. And that will have an effect on our politics, both electorally and otherwise. Yeah, I'm going to mention him later, but Yasha Monk is out with this book, The Identity Trap. He's right. he's a man of, of, of the left, but a liberal. And you know, just just talks about how at various junctures over the last you know, 10 or 50 years, 15 years, something would happen. He's like, these aren't my people. This is not my cause. This is something totally different. And that that instinct has been vindicated, you know, by by what's what's happened the last couple of weeks, and and more more people are gonna of his of his type are gonna think a similar way. Noah. Okay, two things. One, I welcome Yasha Monk's, con uh, you know, uh, conversion here, but the absence of a conversion narrative uh, leaves me rather cold. Conservatives have been saying this forever. I wrote a book that was published in 2019, January, 2019, arguing that social justice was an antisocial philosophy that would devolve into mob justice invariably. It has, but all the time we were talk, we were, we were, uh, you know, talked down to mm -hmm. as though we were all just a bunch of racists looking for some sort of a, a way to retail this ideology. 
So thanks very much, but you need to have a reckoning with the, the people who dismissed our extremely valid and perceptive concerns when it could have been addressed before any of this happened. As for the question at hand, um, I agree with Jim a little, but I want to emphasize something that Charlie said, because I do think this is a mugged by reality moment for many, but I don't think it will last. However, we do see this in our politics to some degree. Nancy Pelosi today came out and endorsed former Representative Mondaire Jones, who's trying to face uh, Mike Lawler next year in New York's 17th district. And she did so by saying that he was, quote, a stalwart supporter of Israel and a champion for funding law enforcement. Mondaire Jones is really not either. Uh, he definitely supported defund the police when it was cool. And he's been a supporter of Israel and an opponent of anti-Semitism, but he's subordinated those concerns when the political imperative was to sidle up next to somebody who supported boycott, divest, sanctions movements. And he put out that horrible tweet the other month uh, in October after McCarthy was ousted uh, with him meeting with all these uh, Hasidic leaders and wearing a yarmulke and saying that was you know a waste of time. And, and Democratic members like Josh Gothheimer came out and said, this is anti-Semitic, you got to take it down and apologize. So Nancy Pelosi is at least broadcasting that they know that these are political liabilities. Their strategy so far for dealing with these political liabilities is just to insist they don't exist. So Noah, go back, going back to your first point, how you're pres prescient and writing about this long ago, were you arguing with Mark Lamont Hill about this on MSNBC and Morning Joe back in the day? No, I was arguing with Mark Lamont Hill on HuffPost Live. Oh, okay. That's how far right. back we got to go in order to go back to the the times when I shared a. <laughs> well, he's a pretty good example. But yeah, he's I remember. A good I had a, when my book came out. I had a, a, like a half hour segment on Morning Joe, that was really hostile, um, just you know, of, of attacking the very proposition of the idea that that social justice is anything other than a synonym for good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I remember. I I watched that segment live. I remember it well. So I'm going to say, unfortunately, a little. So with that, let's pause here from our first sponsor this episode. What do you call a person who speaks three languages? Trilingual. Someone who speaks two? Bilingual. Someone who speaks one? American. Only 22% of Americans speak a language other than English at home. Start learning a new language this fall and be the exception, not the rule, because with Babbel, you start speaking a new language in just three weeks. This fall, you can start speaking a new language with Babbel. Why Babbel? Because it works. Instead of paying hundreds of dollars for a private tutor or fooling yourself with language apps that are a little more than games, Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. All Babbel's tips and tools for learning a new language are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel's better. For instance, one study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. With over 10 million subscriptions sold, Babbel is real language learning for real conversations. And here's a special deal for our listeners to get started right now and to get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash editors. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash editors, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Slash editors, rules and restrictions may apply. Please check it out. So Jim, episode or two ago, Noah pointed out, well, we got all this really depressing national polling in the Republican presidential race, but we haven't seen anything from Iowa in a while. Now we have a poll 
from Iowa hot off the presses yesterday shows slightly better situation than the national polls. Trump at 43 with, I think it's 62 percent of the supporters saying they're locked in. That would mean he has a floor of about 27 percent, a little lower than I would have expected. You can still win with 27% if everything breaks the right way, but it's not an unbeatable number. And then, this is notable too, you have DeSantis down at 16, pretty distant, and Nikki Haley having tied him at 16%. Nikki is drawing from independents, uh, suburbanites, kind of the, uh, in 2016 terms, Marco Rubio type uh, constituencies, and uh, has gained on uh, DeSantis big time in Iowa. What do you make of it? Not much. Um, I don't think there's been much of a interesting or competitive story around the 2024 Republican presidential primary so far. The, the only real movement has been DeSantis going from a seemingly strong second place to sliding back to a much less competitive second place, third place in a couple polls here and there. Um, I suppose if you're Nikki Haley, this is a better spot than you were a couple months ago. You can make the argument she's having uh, a moment, so to speak. But I, I, you know, look, there's another primary. There's another primary debate coming up in a couple of days, and I am deeply disappointed that I could not be in another world trouble spot again. <laughs> um, because you know we're, what's going to happen is all of us at this podcast are going to be contractually obligated to watch all two hours of this thing. Trump will not show up. And, you know, like, maybe Nikki Haley will have a good night. I think she had two good debates. I, I, DeSantis, I thought, had a good one. And we might say a little few percentage points here and there moving around, but Trump's still going to be way ahead. I, I don't want to give tell everybody who's opposed to Trump and the Republican Party to give up, but I just, like, just be, re- you know, just be aware <laughs> that there's there's been no movement, that, that roughly half the Republican Party has been hell-bent on having Trump being the nominee since this process began. And if you want to argue DeSantis has run a bad campaign or made some big mistakes, we could, you can could make that argument, but there's really no indication that he, you know, if he'd been running a terrific campaign, that there'd be, you know, a different, different spot. Um, you can argue, I said, Haley's had some great moments, but there's been, you know, we're talking like, you know, three percentage points here, four percentage mm-hmm. points there increase. Like it's, it's really on the margins that you're seeing any movement. One argument is that Republicans aren't tuned in yet. Uh, I'm kind of skeptical of that, but I guess if you're rooting for somebody besides Trump, you got to hang your hat on something and, and it's conceivable, you know, but I, you know, yeah, I mean, Trump could lose Iowa. Trump lost Iowa in 2016. You saw how much it hurt him, uh, you know, in the, he's probably going to win New Hampshire. And he's probably going to win South Carolina and Nevada and just cruise on in from that. He's, you know, when you start out in the neighborhood of 50% in every contest, you're in pretty darn good shape. Um, it would be nice if the field could consolidate uh, of the non-Trump options. Mike Pence called it quits. Uh, Via Condios, uh, you know, like, I mean, if, if the former vice president couldn't get, you know, an inch's worth of traction, no offense to Doug Burgum. No offense to Asa Hutchins. What what are you doing in this campaign? Mm-hmm. Even Tim Scott. Apparently, I liked him. Apparently, Asa's uh, campaign manager quit o- over a uh, dispute over the direction of the campaign. I, I think meaning whether there should be a campaign at uh, all. Direction of the campaign kind of implies some sense of momentum. <laughs> there really isn't. It's yeah. it is an inert element of this uh, on the periodic table of the Republican Party right now. So, Jim, where, where I disagree with you a little bit, uh, just, just um, I, I don't disagree with your big take here, but there have been, been three big movements. 
one DeSantis down, right? Uh, one Trump up. I mean, you look at the real clear politics chart of the polling, it, and they, they, they totally coincide. It's like DeSantis has shed all these people right back to Trump, right? So Trump up above 50% and DeSantis down in the teens. And the Nikki Haley move, which um, she had a really good first debate. I didn't think the second debate was was uh, was great, but th- this is... It's a it's a notable move, you know, and she's not like nipping at uh, Trump's heels or anything. But it's um, I think it's it's significant and notable. And no, I think you're you're more bullish than than I would I would be. But the, I'll just uh, enter another note of of pessimism from a non-Trump perspective after after what, what Jim said. That the problem is in these polls, you know, nothing static. Things can be dynamic. First voters, first choice can change. Voters, second choice can change. But like a big structural problem, uh, the way the race is right now, DeSantis could disappear tomorrow, and about half the support would go to Trump in Iowa if you believe the polls. And yeah, Nikki Haley would go up some, um, but Trump would go up some, you know, and beat her fifty to twenty-five or, or or something like that. So that it seems to me, unless that changes, that's. Uh, um, and, and a lot, and on the, the other side of the coin is a lot of Nikki Haley support would go to other candidates. Now I think the DeSantis people are counting on those other candidates disappearing sooner uh, rather than later, so they'll be confronted with the choice. The, the whole theory all along was eventually they'd be confronted with the choice of Trump or DeSantis, and they go with DeSantis. I don't disagree with any of that. I think Ron DeSantis. The problem that we're looking at in this poll, in the Selzer poll of Iowa, is the problem we've been confronting this entire campaign season, which is that. Ron DeSantis seems like the only candidate who is acceptable to the Republican Party's MAGA-flavored populist voters that he can assemble a Trump-like coalition. But in order to do that, he would also need to appeal to and persuade Republican voters who are turned off by Trump, the roughly quarter of the Republican primary electorate for whom Donald Trump is not an option. He seems completely disinclined to do that, either incapable or not willing to appeal to those voters. Nikki Haley, by contrast, is. She's asking for their votes. And by asking for their votes, she's gaining their votes. Uh, And I think there's more of those voters among Donald Trump's percent, the people who are not voting for Donald Trump right now, who are supporting other candidates, are likely, more likely, to be closer to that perspective than the MAGA-flavored populist side. If you look at this Selzer poll... And Nikki Haley's moment, movement and momentum here is notable because she went up by 10 points in this survey from August, and Ron DeSantis went down by three. If you look at the coalition that she's assembling, if you were to read a postmortem on a winning campaign in a general election, it would look like this coalition. Independent voters, suburbanites, degree holders, younger women. Those are the type of voters that you want to assemble into a coalition that will propel you to victory in the fall of the election year. Um, Where I think that, I mean, first of all, I don't disagree with Jim's 30,000 foot perspective. That's likely the trajectory of the race. At least it looks like that now. Um, And, you know, there's an extent to which the temptation is in this business not to write the lull, nothing matters, you know, column every week because, you know, well, you got to say something. But I do think there are things to write about here when it comes to the momentum, at least that Nikki Haley is assembling. She's got a tough road to hoe in Iowa. And if Donald Trump were to win Iowa, albeit with a low percentage of the vote, that would matter in his momentum moving into the early states and certainly into Super Tuesday. But Nikki Haley's been rising in South Carolina and New Hampshire. And both of those places show Donald Trump hovering around or below 
50% in the polling. We haven't had a lot of good polls in October. So the only caveat here is we really only know Iowa at this stage with this good poll. And then New Hampshire and South Carolina are sort of black boxes for now. But if you're 50%, it's still a delegate fight. 50% victories, you know, we're not talking about these competitions are not winner-take-all contests, not initially. So there's a delegate hunt that's going to happen here eventually when the when the field winnows. And it looks like it's going to winnow. Right now, there's only four candidates who are going to be on that debate stage, uh, including Donald Trump, who's not going to show up. So it could be a very small debate stage, which would only increase the pressure on the also-ran candidates to get out of the race, either endorse or don't. Mike Pence isn't going to endorse because I think it would do more harm than good to whoever he chooses. But they can signal, the winnowing can occur, donors can make their intentions known by closing their wallets up. There's still a lot of game left to pay, play. It's Donald Trump's race to lose. It's not clear if he could lose it either. By the way, just one brief thing. There was this piece, and I brought this up earlier before we started recording, there was this piece in the New York Times that uh, found a previously unreported finding in an August Associated Press NORC poll, which found that 43% of voters think both Donald Trump and Joe Biden are too old to serve. But among those 43%, 61% said they plan to vote for Biden versus Trump. Why was that unreported? Why was this central feature of the Trump campaign's message against Joe Biden just sort of got left under the radar, buried in paragraph 14, 15 of this New York Times story? Why are they not promoting this, folks? <laughs> so a bright spot in this poll, by the way, is the vagues unfavorables have really, really gone up. So it's clear he, uh, even, even though I didn't really see it, he really hurt himself in that first debate and hasn't recovered and couldn't happen to a nicer guy. So, so Charlie, let me, let me hit you with two things. You can take a whack at, at both of these. One, both of us had kind of mood swings during this, this whole process. I remember way back in 2020 when Trump's endorsements were winning, endorsees were winning all over the place. I, I, I don't know whether I said it on the podcast, but in our pre or post chat, I was like, forget it. There's no chance. You know, Trump's going to win with 70%. Uh, in, a, in a nomination fight, and then I, you know, came back off of that. But, but you know, uh, it's 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 been it's been pretty grim. And, and you just um, a couple months ago, just forget it. The Republicans are in no mood to have a have a presidential race. So one, where where, where is your mood uh, on that now? And then two, talk a little bit about how you think about Mike Pence. You know, it's a cliche that he he suffered this kind of Shakespearean. Tragedy, but but he did. You know, he is a constitutional conservative going way back. He means it. It's at the core of his political identity and his uh, purpose as a politician and, and citizen. So he did his duty on January sixth. And you look at the speaking of graphs of polls, you you look at his favorable, unfavorable. It just collapsed beginning that day because he did the right thing because he did his his duty and and didn't stop collapsing. hasn't hasn't stopped collapsing for all for all we know. Well, on my mood, yesterday I wrote one of those lol, nothing matters columns, as Noah put it, perhaps more accurately described as a sigh, nothing matters. There's no laughter accompanied <laughs> that post. I don't think nothing matters, but I think that we live in an environment in which we have a large electromagnet in the form of Donald Trump. And... As political writers, we're all trying to navigate with that electromagnet in the vicinity. 
And it's almost impossible because it completely corrupts our compasses and equipment. The traditional inputs and outputs that one sees in politics don't seem to exist here. Now, that's true in politics in general at the moment. We are somehow speeding toward an election in which a majority of Americans don't want Donald Trump to run, and he'll be the Republican nominee, and a majority of Americans don't want Joe Biden to run, and he'll be the Democratic nominee. But it is especially true in the Republican primary and in the Republican Party, in which it is impossible to map any form of analysis, even if it's logically consistent, onto reality, because that reality is in flux. There is no such thing at the moment as a concrete meaning of conservative or rhino or religious or hawk or anything, really. Donald Trump is indulged for sins that other candidates are not. What Donald Trump says on the fly alters our politics such that it is nigh on impossible for anyone who is within his orbit to argue, to debate, to make their case. And I find this frustrating because I actually care about policy. I care about outcomes. I want to see conservatism as represented at the electoral level be about more than the ego of one man. I don't care how individuals or institutions or other candidates are plotted relative to Donald Trump or what Donald Trump thinks is good or bad today. I care about absolutes. I care about the debt, which is a real number on a real screen. I care about our foreign policy and our defense budget. I care about our tax rates. I care about our laws, federal and otherwise. I care about Supreme Court decisions. And my conception of these things is not altered by the whims of one person. But our primary is. And so I wrote, uh, without being critical of Noah yesterday, that I love reading Noah's analysis of the primary. I'm just not sure uh, that the scaffolding atop which Noah's consistent analysis is built is actually there. At least is there between days. So my mood... I've heard some people describe it as nihilistic, but it's quite the opposite. It is frustrated at the lack of coherence. I think there are two options. Either I am right, and we really are operating in this environment, and nothing is going to matter. It's not going to matter what positions Nikki Haley takes or whether Ron DeSantis runs a, quote, good campaign, or where the party is on America's role in the world or entitlements or the Supreme Court, or Citizens United, or what you will. Either I'm right about that, or what we are seeing is a process that looks like that, but that actually is far more superficial. It is possible, Jim alluded to this, that we're just too early, that there is a certain inertia that interprets every polling question as, do you wish to give the media ammunition against Donald Trump? And that traditional questions will matter, that it will matter that people don't want Trump to run, that it will matter that Donald Trump is under threat, both criminal and civil in the courts, that it will matter uh, that this election 
is uh, going to have consequences, that it will matter uh, that Trump is old, uh, that it will matter uh, that there are alternative candidates, that those candidates have tried to build ground games and coalitions and have taken positions on issues that actually matter to people. And I guess we will find out. Perhaps we will all be shocked in a few months. Perhaps we will look at the first couple of primary elections and say, wow, the whole thing was false. The whole thing was a smokescreen. And when it came to it, people engaged in primary sensibly and in a manner that befits the moment, which I need not remind our audience, is quite serious given what is going on domestically and internationally. But my mood, I'm afraid, uh, is erring on the other side, uh, which is that, that that is not where we are and that we are still in thrall to this reality-bending person who, while he remains in our politics, contorts everything to such an extent that it is basically impossible to engage. Now, with Mike Pence, I think what you have described is yet another manifestation of that. Mike Pence is being analyzed within the Republican Party purely in relation to how he acted in relation to Donald Trump. No one has said, you know what, I've been examining Mike Pence's positions while he was vice president and before, and I, no, where have you heard that? What are the actual gripes against Mike Pence outside of the Wall Street Journal or National Review? They're not there. The argument against Mike Pence is that he did not acquiesce to what Donald Trump wanted in the moment. And what Donald Trump wanted in the moment was to rewrite the Electoral Count Act in the 12th Amendment to turn Mike Pence into election dictator, to allow Mike Pence, not the public, not the states, not Congress as the ratification agent, but Mike Pence, the vice president, to determine who was the next president of the United States. And because Mike Pence said no, a decision that should be so obvious that it wouldn't even need consideration, Mike Pence is now persona non grata. Mike Pence is shouted at when he goes around the country and gives addresses as some sort of traitor, as some sort of Judas, as a man who failed to live up to his responsibility and his oath, when in fact he did precisely the opposite. This is not a serious criticism of Mike Pence. We're not talking here about shifts in the ideological wing of the Republican Party, shifts in coalitions, shifts in what people care about. It is all about Donald Trump. And that's why I say that I am coming to the conclusion that I just don't know what's going on because all that seems to matter is how any given person in the Republican or conservative universe behaves in relation to Donald Trump. That's it. And until Donald Trump is not there anymore as the big electromagnet that is distorting the field, then it is nigh on useless for us to sit and offer up our pretty words. Jim Garrity, uh, I, I trust your words won't be pretty in, in the answer to this exit question. We're going to double barrel it. Who will drop out first, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley? That's a really good question. Um, I guess Haley. I, I think she's in a slightly weaker position. It's tough to kind of calculate how she ends up. You could see DeSantis faltering because he's been, you know, Ironically, a bit like Pence, too Trumpy for the anti-Trump crowd, not not Trumpy enough for the pro-Trump crowd. Um, but 
you know, Haley has zero appeal to the Trump crowd, whereas DeSantis, you can kind of squint and see the anti-wokeism and look at his record and kind of the populist notes he strikes. So I'm guessing Haley probably drops out first, but I think it's very likely that they will end up being the John Kasich and uh, Ted Cruz of this, that they will stay in long enough to nullify the odds of the other one to have any hope of overtaking Trump. Noah. So this is a tough question because I think it's really mostly dependent on cash on hand, um, not necessarily momentum in the polls, at least until we start getting actual votes. So in early October, Ron DeSantis had about $5 million cash on hand, which is shocking and not a lot of money, especially considering the burn rate. Where did all this cash go? I don't know. And Nikki Haley's in a slightly better position, but not so much that I think it would alter the trajectory of events. I'm going to say that Ron DeSantis drops out before Nikki Haley, but I'm not 100% on that one. I just don't see a trajectory in for Ron DeSantis' campaign after Iowa. He's placing all his bets on Iowa. Where does he go after Iowa? At least Nikki Haley is building up a, a machine in New Hampshire and South Carolina, parking herself in New Hampshire to try to catapult off whatever a second, third place finish there. So, I mean, I don't know. So, Charlie, so, sorry for a- after your a- agonized and eloquent answer just just a minute ago to ask you to do this like, small scale punditry. Well, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know the answer because it completely depends on whether we get some surprise. I mean, suppose that Ron DeSantis wins Iowa. He has been working very hard on the ground. He's not going to drop out then. And maybe that changes the race. These things are dynamic. They're fluid. They One domino affects the other. But then maybe Nikki Haley is the beneficiary. Maybe there is a great uprising of traditional Republicans or suburban women. And DeSantis is so shocked by it, that he has no choice after Iowa but to drop out. Or maybe Republicans have the same collective action problem that they've had historically. None of them ever drop out in the hope of some contested convention. I mean, I don't know. I find it almost impossible because I don't think the primary is real. I think it is a phantom primary. And as I say, that is probably because... Because people have already decided for Well, Trump maybe. Not- maybe it is mm-hmm. the case that the only thing that matters in our politics at the moment is Donald Trump, which speaks ill of us. Or maybe it is the case that it is phantom because no one has actually engaged yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't know the answer. I suspect it's the former. But because it's a phantom primary, I don't know how to judge the relative opacity of the ghosts. <laughs> so... I think you'd rather be DeSantis because I think he has potentially broader appeal still. You saw it in this this Iowa poll. Highest favorables of anyone in Iowa has the most people considering him, t- tied with Trump, I should say, most people considering him, 67%. So it's still, in, in theory, you know, he's still... He's still viable and can have a, a breakout and more of a breakout than Nikki Haley. But because I'm in a pessimistic mood, I'm going to say DeSantis ends up dropping out first. Maybe Nikki, you know, passes him in Iowa, and that's that's the the end of it. And that's just really hard to see. It's hard to see her winning Iowa. I, I think she'd still be a going concern if she finishes a strong second in Iowa because she's been stronger in New Hampshire, and maybe there's a chance she gets momentum from that, but it just, it's hard to see unless there's 
that's kind of the, all all the, the the underlying polling, not the top lines, but the underlying about how various segments of Republican voters are thinking about this candidates, these candidates. Unless that changes are wrong, uh, or it's wrong, it's hard to see how she she has enough to uh, put together a winning plurality against Donald Trump. Jim Garrity, the promised second barrel. Nikki Haley is the strongest general election potential general election candidate in the Republican field. Yes or no? We'll go probably. Yeah, that, that, you know, the age difference, the energy difference um, doesn't hurt to be a woman, doesn't hurt to be a minority. Um, that this, you know, a whole bunch of people who have been writing off Republicans for a long time would probably give the Republican Party a second look if Nikki Haley was the nominee. Alas, that scenario does not seem particularly likely to happen at all. No. I think she's the strongest candidate if the coalition is a Reaganite coalition. I think she can reassemble a kind of George W. Bush 2004 coalition. Um, suburbanites, educated, affluent, uh, the bread and butter of the Republican Party pre-Trump. Donald Trump is certainly the second most competitive candidate because he can assemble the kind of coalition that he did in 2016, perhaps, by energizing voters who are otherwise disaffected with the political scene. I think Ron DeSantis can't do either. I don't think Ron DeSantis can reestablish a Reaganite coalition. I don't think he appeals to the kind of voters that Donald Trump appeals to. So I don't know where his pathway is to a general election victory. Try. Yeah, well, no, I said it's possible, although the counter-argument to that is Florida, where he won everyone. I think Nikki Haley is the strongest possible candidate, yeah. And people seem to struggle to distinguish between the question, do you want Nikki Haley to be the nominee, or do you like Nikki Haley's politics, or do you agree with Nikki Haley on foreign policy or what you are from that question? It's a failure of imagination that we have in our politics to step back. I think the reason that Nikki Haley is probably the strongest candidate is that she's the closest to being a generic Republican. And I've said before, mm. there is no greater electoral force in modern American history than generic Republican. Generic Republican wins elections. Slightly weird Republican does not. And Nikki Haley is generic Republican, and I think a generic Republican against Joe Biden would be really successful. Yeah, I agree with I agree with all of you, and it would just be I mean it's hard to imagine because Jim's right, very likely not to happen. But if she had defeated Donald Trump in in primaries, you know, this incredible upset and slaying the 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 giant, I mean, it potentially be. Electric and Democrats would have to be very, very frightened. With that, let's go to our second sponsor of this episode, Bethlehem College, where students study the great books in light of the greatest book for the sake of the Great Commission. Trajectories of life are being set for young men and women in the pivotal period between the ages of 18 and 25. At Bethlehem College, students wrestle with these realities, not in a 200-person classroom, but in a 200-person college. Bethlehem College is not a Bible college, but everything in the academic program is saturated with the Bible. The school's chancellor, John Piper, said recently that when he looked at the upcoming generations of students, he observed that their God is too small and their reading is too passive. So Bethlehem's aims are to train students in assiduous attentiveness in all their reading, whether reading their Bible or whether they are reading the world. Bethlehem calls this approach education in serious joy and delivers it at a price that ranks as one of the lowest tuition rates in American Christian higher education, only about $7,500 a year. Bethlehem College Education and serious joy. To apply or request more information, visit bcsmn.edu slash editors. That's bcsmn.edu slash 
editor. So Jim, not surprisingly, we're running a little long here, so we want to get a little bit into Dean Phillips, but let's just do it exit question style. So the exit question to you is that Dean Phillips, this congressman who has now registered to run in New Hampshire, where the the traditional first primary that Joe Biden and his allies have uh, dethroned as the first in the nation. Joe Biden is not actually on the ballot. He's going to have to run a a write-in campaign. But the question is, Dean Phillips will finish strongly enough in New Hampshire to seriously embarrass Joe Biden? Yes or no? No. Um, Earlier this year, we were looking at a similar phenomenon with RFK Jr., and polling indicated that most New Hampshire Democrats, once they had the situation explained to them, planned on writing in Joe Biden. Uh, that there was no appetite for, at that point for RFK Jr. I, I can see the argument that on paper, Dean Phillips is what Democrats say they want, meaning, first of all, this guy, as a, Ryan Mills, our, our reporter, uh, laid out, he's got a 100% record of voting with the Biden administration's preferred position on every issue that's come ahead of him. Right? So we have a bizarreness of a primary challenger who has no policy disagreements with the incumbent and keeps telling us how terrific the incumbent is. The only thing Dean Phillips has to offer is that he is a healthy 54-year-old man with the same policies as the guy in charge. As far as I know, he's, he's healthy. He seems healthy. Uh, but I don't think, you know, just because lots of Democrats have doubts about Joe Biden does not mean they were clamoring. Oh, good. Dean Phillips is here to uh, save us. Let, let me put it this way. Rich, the fact that you had to explain who Dean Phillips was to our audience of this podcast, who is extremely bright and politically astute and on top of the news, indicates one of the major challenges for Dean Phillips. Who's that guy again? Didn't he? Wasn't he the guy who screamed in Iowa? No, no, that was Howard Dean. <laughs> this is Dean Phillips. Um, so no, he's he's not going to catch fire. Uh, and even as a protest, I can understand the argument that a lot of people who aren't thrilled about another four years of Joe Biden, even in the Democratic Party, and they want a place to park their votes. But I would not expect. Phillips mania to sweep New Hampshire or anywhere else, really. No. No, but that's not to say that he won't hurt the president in any way that will dog him into 2024. If this was a progressive coming out against Joe Biden's policies, it would be matter of course, dog bites man. But it's coming from the center, which is Joe Biden's affect, or at least the what he tried to retail in 2020. And Phillips is saying, yeah, as Jim said, Biden can't win. Biden will not win in November of next year. And Donald Trump will be in the White House again. And I think whatever arguments he makes in support of that claim will hound him into a general election. Try. The answer is yes and no. No, because Dean Phillips is not going to win New Hampshire, which would be a real embarrassment, or probably get enough of a share of the vote to make international headlines. But this is, once again, symptomatic of Joe Biden's weakness. that He has invited primary challenges, which is not usual for an incumbent president. If you were talking here about, say, George W. Bush in 2004, he'd forgotten to register in New Hampshire or the internal party rules had prevented him from being on the ballot. Do we think that a George W. Bush Republican would have rushed up there to register himself and said, I have to be the replacement. Of course not. It's hard to see with 
Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, even with Donald Trump in 2020. But it's not difficult to see with Joe Biden. It's intuitive. And insofar as it contributes to that overall opinion, this is going to hurt, yeah. So probably not, but it it could happen. I, I'm going to weasel my way uh, around my, my own question. I, I take Jim's points. You know, Dean Phillips has absolutely zero profile. This is not an ideological case against the incumbent president. You know, this isn't going clean for Gene McCarthy. And he's a little... Um, not totally comfortable with making his what is really his case against Biden fully, which is that the guy's too old and he very well could lose the general election. He kind of goes back and forth on that. But a lot of people in New Hampshire aren't going to be particularly happy with what's happened with their primary and Democratic politics. And this guy's going to be going retail and Joe Biden is relying on the write-in campaign. So it wouldn't shock me if he gets close to the, the threshold for embarrassing the incumbent president. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our meter paywall. Your way if you sign up and log in to see about 90% fewer ads and your way to dig deeper into our community if that floats your boat. Won't cut you an arm or a leg and is a, a really important way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already a member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member today, tomorrow, or the day after. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Jim Garrity, you had this bizarre hallucination watching the Giants-Jets game that uh, nothing had happened except for a bunch of punts, but somehow the Jets won. Yes, and I should set the stage. Uh, as listeners know, I was in Taiwan last week. It was an excellent uh, trip, and for better or for worse, the Taiwanese uh, folks who were helping arrange this trip managed to get direct flights from New York. So it was like you know, 15, 16 hours going over there from New York to Taipei, and like 14, 15 hours coming back. We arrived you know, between you know, 11 o'clock in the evening Saturday night, and of course, I you know I live in the Northern Virginia area, and so I had to spend another like you know six hours during a layover, quality time over at uh, Terminal Five, in the wee hours of the morning. So I get home Sunday morning, just a little bit before the Jet game, go to watch the game with my uh, teenagers, and I, you know I, I I figured I must have fallen asleep and dreamed it because it was an endless game where there were more punts. They I think they came very close to breaking the record for punts in a game. Jets were down by three with 24 seconds left. Instead of simply running out, you know, going for it on fourth and one, the Giants go to kick a field goal, miss. The Jets get the ball with a reasonable position, but they have no timeouts left. There's no way they're going to go down 70-some yards. But they went down as many yards, spiked the ball with one second left, kicked the field goal, and then went on to win in overtime. It was a great dream. I just can't wait to see what reality was. <laughs> So now you got a big Halloween party ahead of you? It's the last of the social calendar from Memorial Day to Halloween, and then we close up shop for the year, and I can't wait. But it's it's upon us, and I'm looking forward to it. We did, however, get hit by Mischief Night Kids last night for the first time ever. They got the whole neighborhood with a variety of personalized tricks in a very disconcerting way. And what they did to me was about as personally triggering as it could possibly be, and I'm very confused and alarmed by it. 
they put a Trump sign in my yard. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, where it came from, or how they knew that this would affect me so. But they did. It's very clever. And uh, I appreciate at least the creativity <laughs> behind it. Charlie, so you guys are carving pumpkins. Pumpkins. Yes, and my children chose the most difficult designs that they could possibly find and asked us to carve them, which we did. I have a newfound appreciation for Michelangelo after having carved these pumpkin designs. (laughs) Uh, I'm not historically particularly good at carving pumpkins. I don't know what it is. I'm fairly good with my hands, but there's something about the pumpkin that I find tough, but this not, time not the best material. Yeah, it's strange. I like a I like a five ton block of marble. Exactly, yeah. and as you know, that's how I spend most of the rest of my time. <laughs> but I nailed this one. I have to say, I nailed this one. It's a spooky was it tree. A, was it a spooky? It's a spooky, spooky tree. tree. Hmm. And obviously, you don't. If you were drawing the spooky tree, you would draw the tree. But when you're carving it, you carve all the other bits. It's sort of in. It sounds elaborate. Sounds impressively elaborate. Yeah, I'll see if I can send a photo to you of this spooky tree. But I enjoyed doing it. It did take me about an hour. And um, I imagine you have a good trick or treating neighborhood? Yes. We have, the way I would describe it is we have a trick or treating neighborhood that looks like Halloween in a 1990s movie. Mm hmm. It's exactly what I thought Halloween was like in America growing up in England, where it's not like that at all. So Barton Swaim in the Wall Street Journal wrote a column the other day saying Halloween's gotten way, way, way too big. And, and I agree with them, but uh, the, the kid part of it is, is a lot of fun. I, don't, I just don't get the adults being so, so into it as a lot are. So the aforementioned Yasha Monk, I went to a book party for him. Last night, uh, terrific guy, very very thoughtful. Has written this important book, the Identity Trap, identifying the the sources of this woke madness that's taken over the the left and critiquing it and pulling it apart and suggesting something um, better. So this is this is a very very important project. Um, no, I take I take your point. You know, uh, a, a lot of us, including you, are we're way, way ahead of the curve here. But we need we need well meaning. I haven't read the book. Too. I don't mean to disparage it. I'm sure it's fantastic. The problem is, is that a lot of conservatives were making these arguments a long time ago and deserve to be acknowledged and recognized. You know, just for the record, if you want to hear an hour-long conversation with Yasha about his book, I did a podcast with him two weeks ago, which is available, the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, which you can get at National Review, and we talked about the thesis of the book and its application. Awesome. So, Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Uh, I'm... <sighs> We've had really good stuff over the last couple of weeks, but I think the most recent House editorial, the worrisome spread of anti-Semitism, sums up a lot and speaks for a lot of us. That uh, you know, last week being in Taiwan and writing about issues of China and Taiwan, and, and understanding like you know, this may not have been front and center in most people's minds because back home we were witnessing what felt like an American intifada, where, where basically every college kid has just decided that we're going to be anti-Zionist, wink, wink, but we were going to take it out on any Jew available. We're going to take it out on synagogues. We're going to take it out on Jewish schools. And um, one of the, the, the comments you keep seeing over and over again on social media over the last couple of weeks is this sense of like, you used to watch Nazi Germany and say, oh my God, how could anybody let this happen? How could an entire society just get swept up 
in this like demonic scapegoating of Jews and this idea that, oh, all the problems in our society, you know, uh, can be traced back to Jews and the Jewish influence and the octopus and all that kind of stuff. And then you look at American society in 2020 and you say, oh, that's how it happened. Now, now we're not Nazi Germany, but there are a whole bunch of us, never mind abroad, never mind places like Dagestan, but an allegedly intellectual civilized circles on college campuses that have just decided to wholeheartedly embrace Jew bashing and Jew hating because it's quote unquote anti-Zionist, wink, wink. Uh, ugly thoughts, but I'm really glad the House editorial spoke out so forcefully against this. No, what's your pick? I don't know if I'm violating the rules by picking a syndicated column, Rich, but I'm going to go with yours. The Left's Tiki Torch Brigade, which everybody should read. <clears throat> we were treated to a national conversation when a handful of maladjusted uh, right-wing provocateurs took these tiki torches onto campus in the University of Virginia and chanted anti-Semitic slogans, and it was a national crisis. And I believe it was. I wrote about it with utmost seriousness at the time. I took it very sincerely. And we are treated to nothing like that today when the scale of the menace is infinitely larger than it was in Charlottesville, and it's important to point that out. Charlie? I'm going to pick Jim's morning jolt. There will be no peace so long as Hamas exists. I don't like ideas like that. I am a small L liberal to my core. I spend most of my time trying to explain why we can all live together, how we can create frameworks in which people who have fundamentally different ideas and moralities and religious beliefs and ways of creating meaning can all exist together under the same carapace. But, you know, sometimes they just can't because one group is trying to kill the other or doesn't accept the uh, right of the other to exist. And Jim makes this point, which is the key point that we need to face at the moment. That is that Hamas is not just a different organization. It doesn't have a worldview that is at variance with others. The point of Hamas is to wipe Israel away and wipe the Jews away as well. And it says as much in its charter. And I think Jim lays this out really nicely. So my pick to stick with the Halloween theme is Jack Butler's piece, Ghost Stories with Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk was not just a, a great uh, writer uh, about conservative philosophy, but had a sidelight in Gothic fiction. And speaking of sidelights, Jack has a sidelight in writing about fiction, wrote a wonderful a piece about Ray Bradbury uh, a while ago, and this is terrific, too. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Babel and Bethlehem College, and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.